Hey everyone, welcome to the seventh episode of Digging Deeper. We're back. everybody. It's been a while since I recorded a podcast, but I'm very excited about my guest today. In this episode, I have the opportunity to talk to my first celebrity guest. Her name is Jackie Kai Ellis. Jackie's life story is well known. She recently published a book called The Measure of My Powers. It's an intimate memoir that looks at her life's journey. Jackie's life in her 20s was on the surface perfect. She was married and working as a successful designer in Vancouver. But beneath the surface, she was suffering through depression, feelings of being unfulfilled in her career, and a marriage that was becoming distant and empty. She decided to give up her safe career and found her passion in pastry school while living in France. She made a painful decision to end her marriage, and she eventually opened up a successful and popular bakery in Vancouver called Boku Bakery. She was a frequent guest on local television shows, as well as guest write-ups on lifestyle magazines and she recently appeared as a guest on the social she sold her bakery now and she works as a successful author and lifestyle travel writer at this time jackie is also my god sister whom i've known since we were essentially babies our families met while we were living in squamish bc in the early 1980s i don't have any memory of my childhood in squamish as i was about two years old at the time but according to our parents, they connected after meeting at a local corner store and realizing they were the few Chinese families in this small community. They became friends quickly through mahjong on weekends and Chinese dinner parties. Jackie's parents anointed me as their godson as they had two daughters and no sons. I became the son that Jackie was supposed to be. Through the years, our families have remained close. And although we don't see each other often now with our busy schedule, it's always nice to reconnect with her, Heidi, who's Jackie's older sister, and my godparents. I remember Jackie as a child to be extremely funny and outgoing. Her and my younger sister were often heard laughing uncontrollably during family get-togethers. I really wasn't sure what they were laughing about. And so when I heard of Jackie's story, I was surprised that she went through such a difficult time, but also incredibly proud and a bit envious of her bravery to live a life that is authentic and true to her heart. In this episode, we are going to talk about our childhood memories growing up. We will talk about her journey to finding and accepting herself, her lessons along the way, and her future aspirations. I hope you guys enjoy this special episode of Digging Deeper. I also want to remind you that this podcast is now available on Spotify. And if you like this podcast and other of my podcasts, please make sure that you hit that subscribe button or leave a review on iTunes. Now, without further ado, here's Jackie Kai Ellis. All right, I have on the Skype call uh, my god sister, Jackie Kai Ellis. Uh, Jackie is actually in Paris right now, and uh, it's 8 a.m. in the morning in Vancouver here. You, you sure know how to get me up on an on a off working day. How are you doing, Jackie? I'm doing really well. I thought I would make you work for it. Yeah, I definitely am. Um, so I kind of gave an introduction earlier and we talked about uh, how we met, actually. And uh, we met in Squamish. I 
I don't have any recollection or memories of Squamish, but I'm wondering if you do. I don't, only because we moved when I was one month old. So I can't, I honestly, I don't remember anything. People tell me stories about it, how we used to have a dog named Barry. I don't know if you've heard these stories before, but I guess this dog followed my dad around all the time. I I have no clue. And then we moved to North Vancouver right after when I was uh, one month old. So yeah, exactly. I think my only recollections of our family get togethers were at your house in North Vancouver. Like I was, I think I was like one or two when uh, we were living in Squamish. So probably your sister Heidi has the most recollection of Squamish, I would think, if she has any recollection. Yeah, she does. But um, I remember remember our gatherings in in North Vancouver and the only memory I have really is of you and my sister laughing uncontrollably. Uh, (laughs) and, And me and Heidi would always be wondering what, what were you guys laughing about? And we would ask you and you would try to explain, but you guys would be laughing too much that you couldn't explain. Uh, And then then we would just leave you guys alone. Um, I also remember that, that Ikea uh, green snake, uh, plush tall. Uh, Do you remember that? Of course. That was sneaky. Oh, it actually had a name. Sneaky. Uh, yeah. I didn't even know it had a name. name. Uh, I don't know why I remember. I don't know why I remember that. Um, So anyways. Well, I know why we remember that because we used to play WWF and someone would always be uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I know now. Actually, that's funny you mentioned WWF because last night... I was uh, just chilling at home and I watched a documentary on Andre the Giant. So that kind of brought back some memories. Uh, that's oh. so funny, actually. Yeah. Hey, so actually, the other thing I remember about you uh, growing up was that you were very uh, independent. And I remember in high school, Heidi used to always say, oh, Jackie changes her appearance as much as Madonna does. And uh <laughs> And I think probably that was part of your your creativity juices already coming out at an early age. But, you know, do you remember as, as a child, you know, obviously I know your parents really well, but how did their upbringing shape you or, or encourage you to, to be kind of the way you are now? Well, I think one of the best lessons my mom ever taught me was I, I wasn't very... Uh, good at school when I was growing up. Like I didn't get the A's like everybody else. And I remember always feeling quite defeated, but my mom had given me the challenge of, okay, well, if you want to go to art school after uh, high school, you need to get uh, straight A's, get into university, early acceptance, like get that scholarship, get into a science program, and then I'll let you go to art school wherever you want. So I started studying like crazy And when you first start studying, you don't realize that it's a skill that you have to learn. And so I just, even though I was studying all the time, I was, you know, barely making it through. And I remember feeling really disappointed. And my mom noticed it and she came up to me and she said, did you try your best? Did you give it your all, your 100%? And I said, yes. And she goes, well, then that's all that matters. And then she walked away. Like true Chinese mom, right? Right. And... In, in some ways, it wasn't like a true Chinese mom, 
because I think I hear a lot of stories about other kids where they would try their 100% and get like 98% and then their parents would be like, well, where were the other two percent? Yeah. Where did they go? I tell my uh, non-Asian friends that story too. That's pretty common. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 98% is called an Asian fail, right? Right. That's what we say in our group of friends. But my, my mom knew how hard I had tried and she just said, that's enough. And so since then, I always knew that it was enough if I just put everything I had into something, regardless of whether or not I failed. And I think that's a very different lesson than what a lot of other kids got in Asian families. Yeah. And actually, you know, at what age did you kind of start thinking that maybe academics wasn't for you? Was that kind of junior high, um, senior high, or kind of more after high school that you realized maybe your path would take a, a something that was not what your parents may have anticipated for you? Well, I mean, I, I knew in high school that I wasn't going to be an academic. It just, it didn't make me feel passionate. I did. I didn't like it. I wasn't very good at it at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, Also not knowing that academics is uh, defined in so many different ways. Now that I'm older, I get that. And now that I'm older, I also understand that, that she was a skill, but um, yeah, I knew in high school and also art and creativity was sort of the only thing I was traditionally good at, or I got good grades and let's just say, right. So I thought that was kind of the only way I could go. And actually in an earlier podcast um, that I did with a friend of mine who was um, Indian, we talked about how, you know, with our parents' generation, they kind of grew up struggling and, and definitely making, trying to make ends meet and, academics was one of the things they wanted to instill in their kids because academics equated to a secure job, a secure future, and and no struggle. And I, I think your parents, I know your parents' story, and uh, probably that's what they were hoping for for you, I guess, growing up and, and trying to instill that. And I don't know, did you ever talk to Heidi about uh, what it was like, how difficult it was to to, to try to appease your parents in that way? Well, I mean, we didn't talk about it, but it was just sort of known that if you weren't um, really good at academics or getting the, the, the marks that, that people are proud of when you're in school, that was a huge failure and it was shameful. And you got it through lots of different messages, not just, it, it wasn't direct, it was always for example, you know how parents brag about their kids sort of um, passive-aggressively? Yeah. Because they'll complain about their kids. They'll say, oh, my gosh, my child, they're so annoying. I have to spend so much time standing beside them um, practicing piano because they're just graduating too fast. Like, they'll say things like that. Right. But my parents would never, not never, I shouldn't say never, that's, that's unfair, would rarely passive-aggressively compliment me. And I knew that it was because I wasn't doing something that they wanted to me to do. Right. And I was really good at art, but I think my mom was so afraid that if I followed that path, and she told me later, she said, um, if you follow the creative path, you'll starve to death and you'll have to depend on your sister or me for money for the rest of your life. And she said that to me once. Right. And, and that stuck with me, but it, it made me more because the thing is, it was the only thing I knew I was good at because I got lots of influence from teachers at school. 
So I thought, well, I have to make it work. So that's why I went uh, into design after, because I thought, well, I can, in some ways, I was just trying to prove people wrong for the longest time. Yeah, and actually, I was just about to bring that up because you did talk about that in your book, which we'll get into, is a lot of your drive that, that I could sense from you was to really prove people wrong and maybe even prove your parents wrong. And I think even for myself, a lot of my drive growing up was really just to please my parents. I, I think even even mm-hmm. to this day, and that's something I struggle with even as a grown adult. But another thing that I do struggle with, and I remember talking to your sister Heidi about way back before, was that because our parents were pretty strong characters, and we obviously respected them and admired them, is that they made a lot of decisions for us when we were growing up. And I remember mm-hmm. Heidi saying to me that she found it difficult to make her own decisions because your mom and your dad made a lot of decisions for her. And that's something mm-hmm. that she struggled with uh, in adulthood. And you you're, you were a bit more independent, I know, at an earlier age, but did you ever have those difficulties as well growing up oh yeah absolutely I mean I still do to this day I it's I I know from the outside it seems like I always know exactly what I'm doing and I know always know exactly what I want but actually I I noticed that it takes me a lot more effort and a lot more uh, quietness and time to be able to hear myself think because I'm so used to trying to hear and trying to please everybody else's voices. Mm-hmm. And so um, people who are very close to me know that when, when they're speaking too much into my life, I just actually need to say to them, can we stop this conversation for a bit? I need to have some space to hear myself and decide what I believe and what I think before I can take on anything that can, that challenges it just right now. Right. These are just some skills that, I've had to learn over the years, but because I'm so focused on it and I'm focused on making myself better at it, that's why it might seem like I do it with more ease in the world now. And how, how do you know that the decision is truly yours uh, rather than maybe having some feelings of, oh yeah, it's my decision, but it would please so-and-so? Like, how do you know it truly is a decision that you are happy and content with? I, I have to say that it's a, a, com- it's a combination of a lot of things. First of all, um, it's, it's after your voice is very, very clear, but you're not going to recognize it unless you're, you know what it sounds like. So in order to recognize it, you need to go through the path of recognizing of hearing it constantly and knowing what uh, your voice really truly sounds like in the sense that, you know, when you have a friend and you just meet them, yeah. you sort of know them on, on after a couple hours in a certain way. But after you know someone for say like 20, 25 years, you know, the subtlety of their voice, right. you know, when they're not doing well, things like that. So you kind of have to get to know that voice to that degree of subtlety, but it, it starts with the small things. Do I want tea or coffee? Right. Um, you know, and then it, it, because if you don't even know if you want tea or coffee, then you can't know if you want to make this big life decision or that one. Yeah. So it starts with that daily practice. But um, I think now I've also been, I think, blessed with an inability to live inauthentically. 
Yeah. To me. Yeah. And it, it, some people can really do that like long suffering thing. I, I can't. And it's not a better trait. It's just who I am. Yeah. It's like after a while, I feel like I'm going to explode when I'm going down the wrong path yeah. and I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And so that's a very um, rudimentary way to know when, when you're going down a path that's not for you. Yeah. Is that you feel like you're going to explode. Yeah, I think something internally kind of speaks to you. And for me, I think if I know I've made the right decision, there is a sense of calm or, or peace that you feel. Um, and that's usually when I know, okay, in my heart, I think I'm comfortable with the decision. But, you know, because we admire our parents so much, or I admire my parents so much, is that they always tell me, oh, I don't want you to struggle if I only kind of make any life decisions. And, you know, they always tell me, we have more life experience than you. So, you know, we, we, we've experienced it all. And, and so yeah. that's always kind of in the back of my mind when I, when I think about decisions or make decisions. And I have to say, making decisions is one of the tougher things in my life. When you have different options or different paths that you can go down and you don't know what the end outcome is, it's, it's a scary thing. So I agree, I agree with you that making a decision is definitely a, squ- a skill that you need to uh, develop Actually, even early on, I wish I developed that when I was much younger. But it's it's quite interesting. It's only perceived outcomes that make you scared. In reality, um, no outcome will ever really be so bad. I agree. I agree. I think the way I look at it now is any decision, whether it ends up to be perceived to be bad or good, I think if you look at it as an experience and if it's bad, you learn from it. If it's good, you enjoy it. I think then that's kind of what you were saying. I don't think there's a bad or, or good outcome, you know, cause life is just about learning anyway. So that's my attitude. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So I want to actually get into your, a bit about your book. So, um, so Jackie's published uh, a memoir called the measure of my powers as published, I think in March in the spring, right? Yes. And yes. so I know you've answered this question before, but uh, how how did you get into uh, publishing a book or uh, who approached you? How did that all come about? Um, so, uh, you know, I had been doing all those other things with um, the bakery and the Paris tours and travel writing and all of those uh, all of those projects. Um, Penguin Random House had mm. approached me about writing uh, a memoir at first and I immediately said no because I don't think I knew it at the time but I just said well I'm t- it, my story's not done yet that's what I said but internally I knew that it was because I was too scared to be so vulnerable and open in the world what if people judge me what if I'm not good enough what if um, people people that think I'm so great or whatever they've projected this like thing onto me what if they no longer think that about me mm-hmm. and it's true that I'm I'm not anything or, or you know these like very core childhood sort of fears came out and then I was reading a book um by Brene Brown called The Gifts of Vulnerability okay. I think and uh she's an amazing uh, speaker and writer a researcher and she talks about how vul- being vulnerable is actually the only true way to feel connection yeah. to your community or to others. Yeah. And so I realized that there was no way that I was ever going to be loved 
or feel loved for who I am if I never show up as who I am in the world. Right. And so that's why I decided to write it, um, despite a lot of anxiety. And when you were going through the process of writing the book, did you find it to be, I mean, you had to bring out some painful memories, particularly about your marriage, which we'll talk about in a bit, but was it therapeutic for you? Um, did you did you find that exposing yourself and putting that vulnerable side out? Did you find that it was healing? Oh yeah, it's healing in in the most uh, in the ways that you would expect for sure. Um, the ways that I didn't expect is that you know I did, I never wanted to blame anyone for my experiences. That's not who I am, and that actually would go counter to what I wanted the book to do in the world. If I presented myself as a victim. How then could I present myself as someone who's courageous and strong and can overcome? And so I never, I wanted to take full responsibility for my participation in, in my, in my own life. Right. And the part that I, I realized that was the most painful that I had to forgive the most in order to write it in a way that gave, gave the story uh, grace and perspective was that I had to forgive myself. Right because I felt like I had betrayed myself and didn't protect myself in certain scenarios. So that was surprising. But the second most surprising thing is that through writing it, even at the end, I didn't realize it. It was after the book was printed and I reread it, that it made me realize that I was so courageous in every single moment of my life, not just at the end, uh, after I'd gone through this. Actually, the most courageous moments I had gone through were the ones that were the simplest, like I'm choosing to live one more day by eating a chocolate chip cookie. That was more courageous than moving to France and opening up the bakery. And I think I couldn't have realized that unless I wrote the book. Yeah, and I mentioned that in the intro that I I didn't know you were going through some of these uh, depressions and, and difficulties in your marriage and... After I finished the book, actually, I was talking to my sister as well, who who read the book as well, and we're both so proud of you. Uh, I'm sure everybody's oh, proud of you. you, and a little bit envious, uh, to be honest, that you were so courageous to really live this uh, life that's true to you. It was also funny because we we know your mom really well, and there are a few parts in the book that really just we could hear your mom saying those things in in her voice. <laughs> And I just laughed. I laughed out loud during those. And my sister actually and I both agree that one of the kind of key lines that really stuck out to both of us was really in the beginning of the book when you're talking about your depression. And Mm -hmm. I actually have it in front of me, so I'm going to read it. And obviously, you'll remember this. It says, for so long, I had dreamt of dying to dispose of a life that I despised in so many ways. But if I were to throw my life away anyway, I thought... Maybe I could waste it living, doing whatever the fuck I wanted, however the fuck I wanted. I would have been dead anyway. So then I made the choice to throw away the life I despised and to waste my life living and to never entertain the idea of death again. And when we read that, it totally stuck out to us. My sister actually called me, said, oh, have you read Jackie's book yet? Mm -hmm. She said in this part, and, and it really hit a chord with us because... It's true. I think that, you know, if you were going to throw away your life anyways, you might as well do whatever the fuck you wanted. And mm-hmm. how long did it take for you to come to that point? I, I never knew you were depressed. I never went, knew you went through a depression. But, you know, how long did that period last for? And, and when did you come to this conclusion? It was years. 
it was probably um, from the point that I really went to the deepest part of my depression to the point where I thought that it was probably about five years. Oh, wow. Or maybe a little bit more, but around five years. Yeah. So it was a lot of work yeah. to get to that point. And, and the funny thing is I did it, I did it out of spite. Yeah. Because I was like, you know what? Screw this. I can't believe it. I have this fucking life. Right. I'm just going to live it now. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want and screw this. And, and, you know, in the beginning I did it out of spite, but then after I did it, and all this beautiful stuff started happening, (laughs) and then I didn't even realize it, but then after a while I just started loving life, and now I'm like, I don't want to die. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) You know, I mean, five years is a long time, and obviously I I saw you and your family during those times, and obviously I could never tell that you were going through something as difficult as that. Did anyone else know? Like, did your parents know? Did your sister know? Did anybody else close to you know that you're going through such a difficult time? Other than your ex-husband? Not really. No? Yeah, not really. It was, it was, it was G for sure, obviously. And maybe I had two friends maybe three friends, like long, long time friends that understood and knew and I could call and, but I just wouldn't, and I wasn't very good at reaching out for help. Yeah. Did your mom ever question or kind of sense it from you? Cause your mom's obviously very close. Well, you're, you're very close to your parents and did they ever ask you? I don't know if they did. And a lot of, for a lot of the time I was, um, I was depressed. I actually wasn't talking to my parents at the time. Mm, okay. Okay. I don't know if I told you, but yeah, I had taken it because of that very reason. I, I didn't know what was my parents' voice and my parents' experience and what was my own. And I had to uh, separate uh, things that should have been done in high school. I was doing in my, in my mid to late twenties. Right. Yeah. And so I had to separate from that. I remember. Yeah. You did tell me that. And it was obviously tough, tough mm-hmm. for your parents. Um, but yeah. I mean, the end result is obviously beautiful. Um, I want to talk a l- little bit about your, um, your marriage. Um, so mm-hmm. he's referenced as G in the book and obviously mm-hmm. I met G maybe a handful of times. I never knew him really that mm-hmm. well. Um, there's a part of the book that you quote, um, that your mom and sister just the day before the wedding said that you shouldn't marry him. Um, Mm -hmm. How, I mean, you did touch on a little bit in the book, how it made you feel, but did you ever get that sense before that, that happened the day before the wedding and how did it make you feel? Not, not really. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't get a, a sense. I don't know if they tried to give me a sense, but, for me, it did come out of the blue because they were so supportive of the marriage. And in fact, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, when, when she had asked my parents uh, to marry me, mm-hmm. they said to him, are you sure you know what you're getting yourself into? <laughs> Thank you for taking her off our hands. <laughs> so I just assumed that they were, happy and excited or whatever and and i didn't know but 
Right. Yeah, it affected me quite deeply. I think it, it, what it did, and I don't think that it was the desired result, obviously, of my parents, because I, I know my parents love me more than anybody in this, in this entire world, so that's without question. But at the time, I, felt, I think I felt so betrayed that I never talked to them about the marriage or anything that I was going through from that point onwards, and it created quite a bit of a, a distance between us. Did it um, affect how you looked at G or how 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 the marriage was like knowing that maybe in the back of your mind that your family may have not approved of this marriage um no it didn't make me look at him differently the only thing that it made me realize is that he was my only family right right because I, I, in that moment i actually felt as if my family left me and that he was the only person in the world that actually was my family now. Mm. That's the way I saw it for many years, um, which wasn't true, but yeah. it's it's definitely what I decided to see. Um, and that's not easy. Well, you, yeah, you probably felt really, really alone a lot of times. If I'm, is that true? Yeah, I did feel quite. Yeah, but I mean, it was what I chose. I kind of wanted to separate from my family at that point anyway, mm-hmm. and so I had chosen someone that was funny enough. I, I think I mentioned in this, in the book, he, he played the role very similarly to what my parents did right. because I was so used to just listening to whatever my parents told me. Then I married someone who would tell me what, what to think and do. Right. Right. And because I, I couldn't do it for myself. You said you wanted to separate from your family. Like why, why, do, why did you say that? Because you wanted to be more independent and think for your own or because they didn't approve of G. Yeah. No, it wasn't that they didn't approve. I think that was just a very convenient excuse in retrospect. I think I just was desperately trying to hear my own voice, mm-hmm. and around them, I just couldn't. Okay. Okay. Okay, I get that now. How did you know G was the right person for you at that time? How did I know she was the right person at that time? Oh, that's, that's such a tough one. I think I just knew. Yeah, that's a lot of people say. But, but this is the funny thing. When I look back on it, it was because he was everything that I needed in order for me to learn to become the person I am today. Uh. He was the exact opposite of everything that I was. And he was everything that he had qualities that I wanted for myself. Um, right. It wasn't perfect, but it was, I, I respected him a lot. Yep. And I still respect him. And I admired him. Right. Um, no, actually, that, that and, book really yeah. brings that out that you really respected and admired G, despite, despite mm-hmm. some of the difficulties in the relationship, but it was, yeah, you really actually admired him and he seemed like a really, really smart, intelligent guy that, that taught you a lot at that time about yourself. So I think that's mm-hmm. at that time, that's exactly mm-hmm. what you needed, like you said. And so in retrospect, do you think, mm-hmm. you know, we always say, oh, timing is everything. Everything happens for a reason. You meet people at certain stages in your life at certain points when you need it. Do you believe that was the... I wouldn't say the role G played in your life, but that was that was G for you at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Right. 
I, I'm a firm believer that people are teachers and, and they come in lots of different forms and sometimes it's painful and sometimes it's not. And G, I will say, always was one of the best, most important teachers in my life. And I would never, and a lot of people actually are very confused about why I would say that because people who have read the book um, would characterize him as sort of the, the villain in the book, which I never meant to portray at all. But um, they don't understand why at the end of the acknowledgments, I say, I thank him and I say, I wouldn't change a moment that I spend with you, that I spent with you. And it's true because yeah. I know that that was meant to be and that I am who I am because of it. So it's safe to say you have no regrets about the marriage no. or that experience. Absolutely not. No, I mean, the only thing that I still deal with in terms of um, like aftermath is just that I find it, I, I, I find myself scared to trust myself to not get into such a painful relationship again. But it's just something that I, I'm still working through. I mean, that was, what, seven years ago that mm-hmm. we split up? But, yeah, I still... And uh, uh, yeah. you're, are you dating anybody right now? Or are you single? I am single right now. So yeah. how do you feel about marriage now? Like, would you get married again in the future with the right person? Yes. Yeah, I would. Get, yeah, for sure. I would get married again. I, I don't need marriage the way that some... Some, I think, younger women need marriage. Um, but I would want to be in a committed relationship, a loving one, um, where you choose the other person every day, at least once more in my life. I'd like to experience that. And is it safe to say that what you are looking for at this point in your life for a potential life partner is different? than what you were looking for 15 years ago? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like 100%. Well, not 100% different. There were lots of things about G that I think that I would still want now, but... He was pretty good looking. Um, like, <laughs> yeah, he was, he was hot. Um, <laughs> um, but he was very wise yeah. and very spiritual. Right. And... I, I think I really liked that about him. He, he, he tried to understand himself more and more all the time. And we were both very flawed. And, and, but he tried his best to, to see himself as clearly as he could. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I, I have less of a, a, a lot. I have less of a list yeah. now, uh, obviously, because when you're young, you make this big list of what you think you want. Now it's just I want it to, the relationship to flow I want there to be a lot of respect and I want to laugh a lot. Yeah. I want the person to respect me. I want to have fun. Yeah. Just because I'm in such a different place in my life. Like, yeah. Yeah. So. I think respect is probably the most important thing in any long-term relationship. Actually, I remember when I was yeah. in school, uh, in my party days, I was actually at home and my, one of my friends called me in a drunken state at 2 AM. I was asleep already picked up my phone and he's like hey ben hey ben sorry to wake you up but uh i just had this thought i wonder if you agree or disagree he said uh do you agree with this equation attraction plus respect equals love 
And I was like half asleep. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, buddy. I agree. He's like, okay, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> he hung up the phone. <laughs> but I actually, I, I've given a few wedding speeches and I always bring up that equation because I do believe uh, it's not as, as simple as attraction plus respect equals love, but I definitely think respect is a huge, huge a part of uh, a lasting long-term relationship. So, um, you know, yeah, you mentioned that several times. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to keep you too long because I know you're busy, but I just wanted to touch on your career and when you're opening up the bakery. And mm-hmm. when I was reading through the book about the opening of Boku Bakery and the, the days leading up to it, although it was probably yeah. a tough, tough and stressful time, I loved reading about your drive and work ethic and trying to make the bakery a success. I think that was like a very... I guess another proud moment, but also it was very encouraging. It's like, you know what? If you want to make your dreams come true, you got to, you got to do it. You got to work for it. You got to want it. And, and I, I think that was, that was displayed mm-hmm. and it really resonated with me too. And I can't imagine the feeling of so many people enjoying your creations. Like that must've been the most amazing yeah, feeling. Cool. Right? Yeah. Like still to this day, even though I don't own it anymore, it's, it's really cool when people tell me that it's it's just as good as it used to be or you know I look at it and I still am very very proud. No, absolutely. You should be. And I want to ask you though cuz I don't think you're ever motivated by money. Um but was there any motivation mm-hmm. of expanding the business at the time? Um no. I mean I it's not that the opportunity wasn't there and a lot of people had you know lightheartedly approached me and I knew that if I pushed it would be right there if I wanted, um, you know, to expand to Toronto or even um, Brooklyn or multiple locations in Vancouver. At one point, I thought about it and I realized that I, you're right, I'm not motivated by money, and that wasn't a project that was necessarily inspiring for me because I always try to reverse engineer my life and I say, okay, what do I want my life to look like, and what do I need to to include or exclude from my life in order to make that happen? And opening another location would have just meant traveling between this location, that location. It just would have not been the lifestyle I wanted. And so I decided against it. But that's part of the reason why I sold it is because there were so many people at the bakery that said, look, we want to expand. We want to do these things. We have dreams. And I thought, well, they're not mine, but they're yours. Why don't you just buy the bakery and you do it? And that's kind and that's of how you ended yeah, up. Se- I was actually, that was my next follow up question was what made you sell the bakery? And you just answered it. So, you know, I want to wrap up here by talking about what's what's in the future for Jackie Kai Alice. I mean, you're in Paris. Um, you, you bought a place mm-hmm. and you're, you're renovating. Mm-hmm. And so are you planning to live in Paris full time now or you kind of go back and forth, Vancouver, Paris and travel? Like what is what is your future? Um, I don't actually know. That's the weird part. So, this is a bit of a funny place to be in. I sold the bakery. The book is out, and and I have this place. And I didn't expect to be here in Paris so much as I have now planned to be. I really have no clue what's next, and I'm trying to give myself the space. Uh, and time to really think about it. I 
I'm not used to that because I'm used to going and going really fast and overlapping projects. So this is really challenging my sense of like, okay, every door that I want is potentially open to me. I need to choose what I want and I need to go for it. And I just don't know what I want to do yet because part, part of the reason is because I have, I believe that I have uh, a privilege, which is the privilege of being able to choose because our parents didn't. So I feel like I need to use that privilege well, but I also need to know that whatever project they work on next needs to make me grow me uh, and make me a better person. And it also needs to be something that I feel passionate that can help other people in some way, like all of my other projects, that those were the two requirements. And I just haven't, I don't feel like I know what that is quite yet, but it'll come. Yeah, it'll come. And it's a bit early too. I mean, you're, you were busy with, uh, promoting your book for the last several months and now you're busy with renovations and in, uh, in your new home so it'll come and if, if the past teaches us yeah, anything so. you'll you'll make the right decision for you so I think you'll be fine mm-hmm. I think you'll be fine when are you coming back to Vancouver uh, I'm thinking in uh, mid-August for a couple of weeks just to really just organize some things that's kind of the the major thing because i moved a whole bunch of stuff and it's practical uh and then probably spend october november in vancouver and then okay i'm hoping to have christmas in paris oh that'd be awesome how fun would that be be? amazing yeah that'd be amazing actually i still have to have you over to my house too um so maybe we'll schedule a family get together uh when you get back right Okay, but uh, thank you, Jackie, for your time. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And uh, if you haven't checked out her book yet, it's called The Measure of My Powers, available everywhere. <laughs> All right. <Yeah. laughs> Take care, Jackie. Hey, thanks. Bye. I just want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of Digging Deeper. I want to thank my guest, Jackie Kai Ellis. As well, I just want to remind you that the podcast is again now available on Spotify. And if you like this and my other podcasts, please subscribe or write a review on iTunes. Until next time.